This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Brandy Collins-Dexter discusses her book, Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. She examines the relationship between black voters and the Democratic Party. Post-Obama, particularly with younger voters, you're, you're seeing a more critical lens applied not just to President Obama, but to government in general. And this idea that maybe government isn't the way for, for us, which is a, a little bit of a break from what we've seen traditionally with black voters. She's interviewed by author and journalist Wesley Lowry. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Thanks for joining us. I'm Wesley Lowry, and I'm here today with Brandy Collins-Dexter to talk about her fascinating new book, Black Skinhead. Uh, I'm really happy to be here with you and, and chatting today, Brandy. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, so we've got plenty of time, and I want to dive into the book, but I figured just to table set a little bit, could you tell me and the, the viewers a little bit more about who you are, your background, and, and, and how you get to the point that you're working on this book? Yeah. So um, I come from an advocacy background. I'm actually a lawyer by trade and started in... Um, Chicago doing policy work around people with criminal records and um, trying to like remove barriers to employment. And one of the things that, that became clear to me was that it didn't kind of matter if you shift the policies, if you don't shift the culture. And so I became really interested in kind of like not just like narrative work, but um, in general, like what are the different structures of media ownership? What are the ways in which people are able to like communicate and plead their own cause? And so that took me into the field that's called media justice, which is media rights, access, and representation. And I did that at um, Center for Media Justice until I got brought on to Color of Change, where I spent many years overseeing um, the media, tech, and economic justice department there. And so um, really kind of doing that work around advocacy and, and doing corporate accountability in particular and really looking at what are the different systems and institutions that are barriers to black liberation um, kind of began taking me on this journey towards writing the book. And, and the thing that really set it off was when I, I switched over to the research side. So I was seeing a lot of black discourse online, a lot of political polarization, you know, all of the things that we've been talking about and, and looking at, particularly in a post-Trump world. And I wanted to know the answers to what I was seeing, and I felt like the research out there wasn't really meeting what I needed in terms of answers. And so I switched over to the research side, and it was while I was doing my fellowship at Harvard that I, I met uh, the person that would eventually introduce me to my agent, and a book was born. <laughs> now, a big part of this book is you thinking about talking to, interviewing black Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and getting a sense of their politics and their politics in this moment and, and in this era that we live in. And, and this era is obviously in part defined by the election of a black president and mm -hmm. what comes after mm -hmm. that, right? The things become kind of definitional of that. Uh, at, at one point, you know, I wanted to 
basic conversation in some of your writing, and so at various points I want to go back in, right? At one point, you're writing about kind of the message of the Obamas and how they had painted the picture of the black American dream. And and you write, the Obamas' message was if we work within the system together, pushing through lingering challenges, we can make it truly work for us. That you get what you earn, that those who have previously held power can't keep us all out, and that those of us who are able to break through will come back for the rest of us. That the public and private systems that shape our everyday lives aren't broken, that the real problem is those who control the systems and the people who don't show up to vote. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the kind of core ideology of the Obamas as a political project, right, and, and, and the politics of black America in the decades between, you know, the Voting Rights Act and the election of a black president that lead us into the era that we're in now? Because much, much of what you write about and much of the movements we've seen that rise afterwards come as a response to these types of politics. Sure. So I think, you know, one thing to anchor this in is um, I grew up in Illinois. I'm from Chicago. My family is like multi-generational Chicagoans. And so, you know, the pride of seeing the rise of, you know, first Senator Obama and then, you know, President Obama, like you could feel the electricity on the south side of Chicago. And so, like, I just I remember those moments and, and the pride around him. And also a lot of that mirrored um, Mayor Harold Washington, who was the first black mayor of Chicago. And uh, what I find fascinating is that he he became mayor, I believe, in 1983. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a very polarized time. Chicago is uh, one of the most segregated cities in America. A lot of racism. I believe Dr. King once said after he left there, if you want to know, I, I'm paraphrasing, but if you <laughs> if you want to know how, you know, uh, real racism looks, you can look no further than Chicago. Um, and so the energy that it took to get um, Mayor Washington elected in the early 80s, it really took a coming together of community organizing. Like this is also the era of kind of like post-Fred Hampton assassination in the city. And he had built what was called this like rainbow coalition of mm-hmm. different groups coming together that had their identity interests, but came together through, you know, kind of shaping a shared economic agenda or different things like this. And so the leftover, the hangover from, from those groups combined um, with a lot of work organizing within black communities, a lot of work around local black media, infrastructure. All of that was core to getting Mayor Harold Washington elected. And I think a lot of folks right now, I think his name is kind of associated with the library. If people know him, it's like first black mayor. Mm -hmm. But what they may not realize about him was that he was a leftist and a populist. And um, he was also highly surveilled, actually, Mm -hmm. by the previous uh, mayor, um, Mayor Daley won before he even got into office because of his activism. And he was part of the Mayor Daley machine and then realized the flaws of that and, uh, you know, moved out of that and began to challenge the Daley machine. And so, like, a lot of the ways in which he rose to power, the way he was able to organize people around this idea, he was a populist, but one that talked a lot about hope and possibility and change. And that... Um, Together, we all could create, you know, a mass swell of um, power to challenge um, all of the systems that have been working against us and all the leaders that have stood in the way of of equity. And so when I think of President Obama and his rise, uh, 
it very much parallels and is very much built on that infrastructure, this idea of uh, black power, um, but also like equity across the board. But one of the things that I feel like we saw that was different with President Obama is that, A, he was a little more green than um, Mayor Harold Washington. Like before he became mayor, he was, you know, in Illinois, um, state congress and then was a representative going toe to toe Mm -hmm. with um, Ronald Reagan at the time. And so he was a seasoned political figure. And so he knew how things worked and he wasn't necessarily going to be, you know, jerked around or or have other people kind of take that lead for him. But also he was somebody who um, had a healthy amount of skepticism around corporate power and around a number of other things. And I think President Obama, what I see in him is somebody that took a lot of that energy, um, really built off of that to build that model and expand it out across the country in places like South Carolina and get people to believe that something was possible that people hadn't really believed was possible before because of the backlash that we consistently see from like the civil rights movement, from these like moments of equity. Um, He really centered people around this idea that we could win. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen after that, in part because he was coming in during the 2008 recession, but for a number of other reasons, is that black people at scale didn't necessarily win economically. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of ways in which we still continue. The racial wealth gap continues to widen. Wealth continues to be concentrated at extremely high levels. Corporate power um, tends to... Uh, you know, maintain uh, the status quo and and provide cover to a lot of um, hostile entities that don't necessarily want to see equal rights for everyone. And so I think post-Obama, particularly with younger voters, you're, you're seeing a more critical lens applied, not just to President Obama, but to government in general. Mm-hmm. And this idea that maybe government isn't the way for, for us, which is a... It, a little bit of a break from what we've seen traditionally with black voters. And that's not everyone. I think we've seen a lot of rise of black leftism and embracing, no, we need to force the government to be accountable to us more. But either way, there's a scrutiny of the Democratic Party um, as as a political home for black people um, that I think is is leading to some different trends in terms of the ways in which people engage with the political system. So, so essentially... Through the election of a black president, we now got to analyze and interrogate the limitations of a black president. Yes. And that in those limitations, what we then found were black people who they themselves did not feel fulfilled by what by the promises as they were met or delivered or undelivered. Yeah. And and so what we now see is an additional kind of political response to the presidency itself. Um, you describe this set of people in some ways as black skinheads. Yeah. Right? And, and that's and not just on one side of the aisle or on the other side of the aisle. Can you talk to me a little bit about the history of that term, right? Because it was interesting to me uh, reading through this, and you know, I'm doing some writing now specifically around right, white supremacist movements, and so I've engaged that term primarily in that context. Yeah. Uh, but as you noted, you know, the skinhead movement initially uh, begins kind of rooted in music, and yeah. in a different type of space in a way that is more multiracial. Um, and, and so can you talk to me a little bit about 
your, uh, you know, how you get to this terminology and, and how, one, the history of, of, of the idea of being a skinhead politically, but secondarily, how we, we start to apply this label to the set of people in different parts of the political spectrum who are now mobilized or engaged via their disappointment in the limitations of a black presidency. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to be having this conversation right now um, with the the death of the queen and a lot of questions that are coming up around the role of monarchy Mm -hmm. in colonial power or in a lot of, uh, you know, countries in the Caribbean and other places because this is this is kind of so the skinhead movement began in the 60s and it began in London in Brixton in working class uh, community and it was the first multicultural subculture in the UK which had up until World War II been pretty I say racially monolithic. It's a it's an interesting way to frame it that way because race is kind of in some ways a uniquely American construct. But um, a lot of the people that were part of the colonized nations of the monarchy weren't living in England. Let's mm-hmm. put it this way. And then World War II happens. Everything gets destroyed. They have to rebuild, and the Windrush generation comes in. And so it's people literally coming in on boats from Jamaica, from a number of other places, and moving into Brixton in these communities. And they're living alongside white working class people. And they're all organizing around the music. They're finding solidarity around their love of music, reggae music, rock steady, soul music. And they're also building this aesthetic that's like um, very working class. So a lot of them had to go to work and they had to wear combat boots to work. They had to keep their hair short. It wasn't, you know, and mind you, this is the 60s where it was more in style for people to kind of wear their hair long and you think the UK, you think Austin Powers. But this was a much more sort of um, rugged style, subculture, and aesthetic. And it initially was this first multicultural, in some ways political because of the working class element. Mm. and then what we saw was with, you know, Thatcherism, rise of neoliberalism, a lot of economic decay continuing to happen, that it shifted a little bit. And so the next generation of skinheads that started coming in were more hostile to the Windrush generation or to people coming from outside of the country and, and developing this more, you know, solidly nationalist identity that was intentionally exclusive to the different other groups that resided in the country and that's how you start to get to like white nationalism and you have skinheads that are continuing to push back against that but that's the tension that's playing out and you see that mirrored actually over over here as well with the rise of neo-nazis in the u.s in the 80s and later yeah. but i think you know for me this term black skinhead um one it's a call to like you know what are the identity politics within a multicultural society um, and how do those things you know play out particularly in a working class setting where some people feel like they're losing and um, that others are winning and that um, people particularly I think black folks in this country feel like we've been here you know we built this country like even with my own I had to do a DNA test for research purposes, begrudgingly, but my DNA traces back to the 1600 mm-hmm. slaves. And so, like, I think when this has been your home, 
for so long, or even if it hasn't been your home for so long, but it's your home now, and people constantly tell you that it doesn't belong to you, and that you there's nothing owed to you, that, that starts to breed a certain amount of resentment and hostility. And particularly, that becomes um, directed towards political structures and parties. And mm-hmm. so that's what I'm looking at with Black Skinhead. I'm looking at both the rise and development of black culture, the erosions of that, and um, the ways in which black voters who are expected to just show up and, and vote blue no matter who are starting to really question that on the left and the right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You, you write that you know, skinheads were united by a frustration with the status quo and a sense that the working class was being left behind. And, and, you, and you talk about how that is a solid prism through which to understand black voters in both political directions currently who are breaking off from our kind of more traditional two-party systems, both Mm -hmm. the black MAGA uh, voters as well as many of the black, whether it be Marxist or more leftist Mm -hmm. voters, Mm -hmm. who find themselves deeply dissatisfied with the options otherwise offered to them by our political system. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Black Skin had also... um, is the title of a Kanye West song. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, <laughs> yeah, uh, buried the lead on that one. Right, yeah. you know, from, from, uh, from the Yeezus album. And, and one of the things I, I really appreciate about this book is the way you interweave both cultural commentary and criticism, political analysis, and also personal memoir as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit. We've kind of, I think, established the basis of the political uh, parts of this book, but let's talk a little bit about the cultural context, right? Yeah. You, you're a black woman from Chicago um, at, who wrote a book that is titled after a Kanye West song. Tell me a little bit about uh, how Kanye factors into this book. Yeah. So he's, um, he was in a lot of ways the place where I started from when I began doing this research. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, in 2019, I was looking at online uh, black communities and how information was moving in those different spaces. And it happened to be around the same time Kanye West dropped the Jesus is King album. And um, he had already come out as a MAGA supporter. We had seen him at the White House, you know, um, pleading the cause of Larry Hoover, Mm -hmm. um, you know, having all of these sort of conversations and dialogue with Donald Trump. But because he, I think, had to do publicity around the Jesus is King album, he popped up and he kept making these comments like, uh, no more living for the culture, you know, I'm nobody's slave, like we're cultureless, um, presumably referring to black people, I'm building a new culture, all of these kind of things that I thought instinctively, no, that can't be right, like that doesn't feel true to me. And so really examining whether or not Kanye was an outlier or, you know, part of a a trend that was emerging um, with younger voters, that was the journey that began this book. And so I talk about that. I talk about my own contradictions. Um, I talk about my own contradictions with Kanye. I come at it in some ways as a fan. I'm a huge fan of his music. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when the Hurricane Katrina moment happened where he talked about George Bush does not speak, uh, does not care about black people and some of those other moments of political um, challenge that resonated with me. I know his mother is actually a pretty big, um, you know, Chicago legend. She was one of the first people to talk about Ebonics as a, you know, coded black language and, and something that should be preserved and seen as part of how we developed our culture under the eyes of white surveillance. And so to have all of that and then to compare that and contrast that with him saying we were cultureless, that was really what I was wanting to examine in the book. And so that's what led me to these conversations with black voters, um, looking at pop culture. The other thing about it is that I'm a latchkey kid. My mom hates when I say that, but I mean, she was a flight attendant. My dad was a basketball coach. They were, I was in front of the TV a lot. And how I associate things is, you know, a pop cultural memory. Mm. And so people will randomly say, oh, this thing happened. And I'll be like, oh, that's just like that episode of Saved by the Bell that I saw once. Or it's just like this like wrestling match I saw once. And that's my natural way of sense making. And so I tried to bring that to the book, like really drawing parallels between some of the political stuff that we're seeing and how that aligns with like pop cultural moments that maybe feel familiar for people, maybe feel less familiar with people, but are interesting to folks in some way. And so throughout that, Kanye comes in and out as a ghost. Um, But yeah, I look a lot at music. I look at Sports. I look at all of these things that shaped me as a person and I think have shaped, you know, uh, I would say generation, my generation and I think other generations as well. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about how black voters and black political thought kind of breaks down into different buckets of, mm-hmm. of broad uh, uh, people. Can, can you talk to me a little bit about those factions of uh, of black voters and black political thought. Um, you, you, you cite uh, Dr. Michael Dawson yes. um, and, and his kind of six buckets. Um, mm-hmm. at, can you talk to me about those a little bit? Yeah, so Dr. Michael Dawson is a professor at University of Chicago, and he's done, I think, one of the most comprehensive breakdowns of black political identity. And when I was actually doing my research about online discourse in black spaces, I tried to create my own chart of black political expression based on what I was seeing. And it was like, nope, uh, he, he already has it. Like, I, I can see signs of that. And so he, he really looks at a number of historical figures. I think this is the process also of years of interviews and data collection. Um, he released Black Visions, I believe, in the early 2000s. 2001. Yeah, but it still remains, again, um, one of the best attempts to really identify all of the different ways in which uh, black people politically identify. And so there's categories, um, you know, there's there's black feminism as a category, um, I believe black nationalism um, mm-hmm. as, as a category. Um, a lot of these overlap. There's liberal, there's, uh, or sorry, disillusioned liberal as a category, um, you know, black conservative, but he really, he looks not just at how people vote, because at that point we were voting at a, in a large block, mm-hmm. but how pe- what people's political values and ideologies um, expressed are and, um, and how they self-identify. Uh, and so, like, I wanted to break down those categories, and I, I tried to do it using this kind of, 
you know, world's blackest cafeteria metaphor because I thought, one, it's really important for, I think, people to understand that black people are not a monolith, that we all have, you know, different categories that we fit into and overlap. And what has actually kept us tethered is this idea of linked fate, which is another um, term, you know, from Dr. Dawson, which is this idea that we have to, like, we have to work to enact to uplift the group. And that, um, you know, when something happens to an individual within the group, it's happening to us. And that is part of the reason why traditionally with black voters, you've seen um, someone who may express a personal ideology of being conservative, of being against abortion, um, you know, pro low regulation or no regulation on gun rights and still a consistent Democrat voter mm. um, because ultimately we have felt, um, you know, for generations, as, as Dr. Leah wright Rigger also talks about, that the Republican Party um, cannot serve us and that the Democratic Party can serve us. And so people have, um, black people have consistently voted in this block in service of our community. But what happens when we think that it's no longer serving us? Mm. And, or what happens when people don't necessarily feel an obligation of linked fate? Um, you know, I think Pew said, uh, did a research a couple years ago that said that black people far and away were the group most likely to uh, feel linked fate by mm. significant margin. It was like 73%. I think the next closest um, pers- group was in the mid-60s. I think it was like Asian-Americans. Um, but that number is starting to go down over time. I think people mm. are starting for a number of reasons, and I speculate why in the book, aren't necessarily feeling as tethered to to black culture or black people or community. And so then how does that manifest in terms of how voting looks and a number of other different signs? And so that's that's mm. part of what I'm unpacking in the book. It raises to me an interesting question as well as we think about other minority groups, whether it be immigrant groups or other groups coming in, and to what extent we should assume that their politics or their political behavior are going to be similar to that of what black Americans have had historically, right? That mm-hmm. we've, black Americans have, as a group have behaved politically kind of based on this concept and this idea, this core tenet and belief of linked faith. Yeah. Uh, or linked fate. Um, Both. <laughs> but, right? But what happens as we as we think about immigrant groups or other groups coming in, mm-hmm. is it a mistake to then assume that they are also going to operate in the same way? Um, you know, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I, part of when I started doing the book, this was definitely a journey for me, and I had a lot of aha moments that if you were talking to somebody that was like an anthropologist or communications person, they would have been like, well, obviously. <laughs> but I think, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me is when you say black, that can mean race, ethnicity, or culture. And that's not always true Mm. for other um, groups. But you have race as this census categorization. And that was something that was constructed in this country um, in part, uh, you know, to preserve economic caste. And so you have people that come to this country over the last, Mm. you know, generations who come into this construct and have to check the census box that may not be like how they identify in their home country. And that in and of itself is this like jarring experience. Um, And then you have, you know, some of the experiences that people have with policing and a number of other, you know, ways in which 
um, hostilities towards you know black people are asserted, and that becomes a sort of traumatic bonding experience that forces people into this idea of blackness. But that is a very different thing than black as an ethnicity, mm. or you know, versus, let's say, Jamaican or, or something else. And then black is a culture, and the culture that we built in this country specifically through media, through black newspapers, through the shared story of not just struggle, but thriving and living and existing and all of the, all of the things that keep us, you know, tethered together in that linked fate. And so I think in previous generations, you saw, you know, black people coming to this country or people coming into this country and finding themselves in a black identity and then engaging with black culture through, you know, segregated neighborhoods, through like these different institutions in which black people across class and ethnicity are working, living, eating together, mm. and that's creating a shared identity. But increasingly you see that people are, you know, becoming more economically segregated, more segregated along a number of lines. And so that feeling of black as something other than this like traumatic bonding experience you know, I speculate is happening less and less, and it's not a guarantee that people are going to come in and feel this like black solidarity or commitment to uh, you know uplifting us at scale in the same way versus maybe their own ethnic group or hmm. you know their family on a more individual level. Even beyond the broad idea of linked fate, you identify. Uh, kind of four points that largely seem to be shared consensus across black mm-hmm. political thought, right? The first is that racism exists. Second is that racial justice, however you define that, is necessary. Third is that self-determination, land ownership are fundamental goals and the ability for black people to obtain. Um, and fourth, that, there's a sh- that, that having some type of shared black agenda is critical to achieving the three things that come before that. How... How firm do you think that consensus is, even as you dive in and, and talk to the various kind of black skinheads at different parts of the uh, the uh, economic spectrum, right? As, as I read this and I, I was thinking, you know, there certainly probably are some members of the right, black Republicans or, or, or black MAGA folks, who might deny some of these things. Now, they might do that for political purposes. One might say it's part of their political project. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, but I'm wondering how firm you think these consensuses are, even if we accept as a premise there are like massively divergent um, ideas about how to achieve those things. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's rapidly changing. I mean, that's the thing that, to me, um, I'm warning about in the book. And mm-hmm. part of this goes back to like my bread and butter background, which is in media and and rights ownership, black-owned and controlled media, that Mm -hmm. was the mechanism by which we built a shared story. I think a shared story of black culture and identity um, couldn't really exist pre-Civil War. Um, You might have, you know, black uh, microcultures within different, like, physical space, but it was really, at that time, we weren't allowed to read, they necessarily travel broadly. It was really hard to build this, like, shared story. It came, you know, after the Civil War, after the rise of of black media. Um, I think in Illinois alone, there were, like, 150 black newspapers at one point. And you had, like, the Pullman porters on the rail lines picking up these newspapers, like the Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier, others, 
transporting them across country. And one paper would circulate among 100,000 people in the community. So that's how you're building this shared story. And through that, this idea that there is a struggle, that there is racial injustice, that there are these lynchings happening that you might not otherwise know about and all of those things. And as we see the mass loss of media spaces, of land, and other things, I think that shared story is fading away. And I think the internet environment in particular has allowed for a lot of, uh, let's just, yeah, grifting <laughs> from different entities um, who can, you know, come in and be the kind of like black face of white supremacy, quite frankly, and um, can say, no, racism doesn't exist. That didn't happen to me. Or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of organize around these ideas that are very, I think, disruptive to um, the broader economic, uh, cultural, and social struggles of black people. And so that, I think that's some of the stuff that we're up again. I, I think it also as people, you know, move into segregated, as we saw, like, black wealthy people move out of black communities um, and move into, like, white suburbs or other spaces. Like, some of that alignment or humanity of folks kind of erodes away. So then it's like, well, why can't you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? So mm. there's, like, an you know, increasing absence of empathy in a way in which, um, you know, black culture becomes, again, increasingly fractured along class lines. And so I think that's, to me, I feel like that's what I wanted to talk about because I think that's what we're seeing right now. I'm curious what you think about that, though. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that the the fracturing of the media environment broadly, I, I think, is a huge part of it in terms of us no longer having, and, and this is true, it's not just the media environment, right? You have black Americans in a ostensibly post-segregated world or, mm-hmm. or a, in, in the era of integration, now having access and having to fight for that access still, but now having at least half of the door cracked open to access to spaces that had, prior, that had previously been explicitly segregated, right? Um, and, and so because of that, uh, the victories of one era must always lead to the problems of the next era, mm-hmm. right? And not that it even creates new problems, rather, yeah. but it allows you to consider new problems that didn't exist before, <laughs> right? Yeah. You can't worry about voting if you're not considered human, right? right. And so, so you get one, and now you can now you can worry about the other. You can't yeah. elect a black president when you can't vote, right? Now, now you can think about another thing. You can't believe, you can't dream beyond a black president if you mm-hmm. haven't had one. Well, what Obama does is he gives permission to black people to suddenly start thinking beyond representational politics mm-hmm. in different ways. Not that there hadn't already been people doing that, right? So as I think about this era, not just in media spaces, but in terms of institutions across the board, we have black, um, it, we, we've seen a erosion of black institution, um, whether that be in media space, whether that be in H, with HBCUs, whether mm-hmm. that be black economic centers and economic mm-hmm. power centers, right? And there are any number of reasons for, for these things. Like I said, in some cases, some of these economies and environments were set up explicitly because of the denial of access. Almost all of them were set mm-hmm. up that way. Um, and so now that there was access to other spaces, better resource spaces, you understandably see a splintering of the population. Um, and, and, and yet, uh, because of that, you start to lose some of your sense of shared collective black identity, both culturally and politically. Right. What we also now see in a more globalized world, in a post-internet world, right, is a world where there, where people now have the ability and access to information 
in some ways even more specifically, to mm-hmm. be connected to the places where they are from, to trace their ancestry in ways they, mm-hmm. they had not before, to connect with the diaspora at large, right? And, and, and so in some ways what that does is it adds layers and complexity to our kind of collective black identity, yeah. right? But at times, by the very nature of that, begins to splinter and split it yeah. in, in different ways, right? Um, and, and allows us to begin thinking and, and debating and about how those identities intersect in places where they where our experiences are not the same yeah. um, in a way that I think is really interesting as well. Um, I think beyond that, though, and, and as, as you know, there, there is this, this sense and this moment of, you know, if you have a black presidency, this does become a, a, a pivot point, right? It becomes mm-hmm. a thing that people are going to respond to in one direction or the other, right? And that for some people, they are going to use it and take it as evidence of an ultimate victory yes. in some way. And then their politics are going to be responsive to that in okay. one way or the other. That, that you see, and I, I want to get into some of the specific people you write about and talk about. Um, we've, I think, done a really good job of kind of setting the, like, philosophical, sociological table. But you do a lot of, like, actual, like, kind of on-the-ground real people work, which I think is a fascinating part mm-hmm. of this book. Right? But I think that the... But I think that the the kind of, the moment when you have such level of black achievement, what that allows is it creates a permission structure for at least some of mm-hmm. uh, black voters in the black skinheads you document to now opt out of the belief that racial injustice is kind of a persistent issue and has to be remedied in some immediate way, and, and in fact lean into some of their other beliefs as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I want to talk a little bit about is, it, are who are these people, right? Who are the folks, both on the left and on the right, who are largely opting out of the system as we've constructed or increasingly opting out of the system mm-hmm. as we've constructed it? With the premise and the caveat that the majority of people in your kind of blackest cafeteria ever uh, metaphor, right, the biggest table is still kind of the black establishment. Yes. Folks who are going to be Democratic Party voters, folks who believe largely in operating within the systems as they are constructed. Um, even though they believe the systems need to change or be reformed or tinkered, right? But that not folks who are here necessarily for a full-scale overhaul of, mm-hmm. of things as they exist, um, but rather, you know, folks who who believe in kind of the long arc of history, uh, working towards, uh, you know, a more equitable outcome. Your book focuses on the people who aren't at that table, who are all the other tables. Mm-hmm. Who, who are who are those folks in, in this era? Yeah, I mean it. So this was, I think, one of my favorite parts of doing this book, because particularly I wrote it between uh, late summer of 2020 and then December of 2021. So we, we were still, you know, heavily quarantined. The way mm-hmm. we were socializing was really different. And the ways in which I was able to even find my own community was through these interviews. And so I interview black voters between the ages of 18 and 108 and tried to get you know, every political representation I could. And so I I speak to folks like uh, one of my favorite people to talk to was Karida, who um, is from Mississippi, but uh, lives in uh, the D.C. area now and is an IRS agent, a retired one, I think. And she's like hardcore leftist and, and feels like I'm tired of marching in the streets. I'm tired of voting for political figures who don't seem interested in things that are going to help my community at scale, whether that's Medicare for all, clearing student loan debt, you know, um, 
rerouting funding to police and to like social services and things like that. And and so she's started self-organizing and organizing a group of folks across the country. Um, you know, at the time I spoke to her, it was leading into the 2020 election and she was organizing uh, a write-in campaign around Nina Turner. That was like her candidate. Um, but like, I, I found it fascinating. She, like other, um, you know, folks, I think it's like 70 or over 70% of black voters under 45 are potentially interested in third-party options. Mm. And so she was someone that was both thinking about how do we radicalize the Democratic Party, but also what does it look like to to build systems of support for those like third-party candidates, you know, from Green Party, DSA, and others. And so that's that's one person I talked to um, that I introduced in the book. Um, you know, I spoke with uh, a sex worker who, a porn actress, actually, I, I went on to OnlyFans and had this kind of like awkward <laughs> approach. Um, you said you wrote, you sent her a really long message. I, were, it was a like, long message. I, yeah, it, I also copy and pasted it wrong. So it said, I promise to make things weird for you. And I was just like, oh no, she's gonna, she's gonna like call the web police. I'm going to get kicked off of OnlyFans. It's going to be awkward. But she responded and we had this conversation. And she was really interested in stuff around, um, you know, how do we organize around human rights for, for sex workers? And, and she came from what I would see as a black feminist mm. politic and the sort of next wave of feminism and how that fight plays out online and what sort of policies and, and what decision makers do and, and how we hold decision makers accountable to ensure the full humanity of everyone online and off. And so that was another example, I would say, of a, of a left-wing um, voter. And then I spent some time talking to um, some black MAGA folks. And that was interesting in a lot of <laughs> levels. It was funny because I was doing my video call with them and my mom who's like, she's sort of a capital D Democrat, but from like a political agenda standpoint, she she agrees more with Bernie. She's like a former union president, all of these things. But she was like listening to the video call, like in the other room when I was doing it, and was like arguing like, these people are loony. Why are you even talking to these people? I'm like, mom, I'm trying to do the full research thing. Shut up. Um, but like they came from different perspectives. There were some that were very traditional family values and had this idea that, um, the black family was being broken down and that um, it was in part due to the Democratic Party and, and some of the platforms of the Democratic Party. And that was their draw to Republicanism and Donald Trump. There were some people um, that were libertarians and who come from that kind of like Booker T. Washington um, stuff. We just need to build our own black communities. We need to, you know, build, we need to build black capital and the government cannot, will not help us. Um, but they weren't necessarily like a, a religious or family's values. And then there were some people that were just like, I just want to see something different. And to me, Trump represents someone who can disrupt the status quo. You know, people mm. that sound in a lot of ways very much like Kanye. Um, and so, like, I, I, I spent time with some of those folks breaking apart, you know, why it was that they got to that perspective. And what I actually found is that for a lot of the folks that I talked to, they still did believe that racism existed um, and that there was a need for some form of a black agenda. They just felt like that agenda um, did not include big government or, you know, you know, included things like Second Amendment rights. That was like a really big thing, the ability to like have guns to protect your own community. 
Um, school choice was another big mm-hmm. thing I saw. But, um, yeah, it was, it was really fascinating to me because I was talking to all these people, and all of them at the end of the conversation would be like, well, there's no way I would talk to, like, a crazy socialist, or there's no way I would talk to, like, a crazy MAGA person. But I'm like, y'all, that's how black organizing has traditionally happened. We have had, you know, people come from, like, a, you know, an A. Philip Randolph, for example, as a socialist, and, uh, you know... Milton um, Webster, I believe his name is, mm-hmm. conservative, organizing together around Pullman Porters to build an economic agenda. In fact, the only ways in which we've been able to move an economic agenda that benefits black people is through cross-ideological organizing. Mm. So it, to me, was you know, a little alarming that we didn't have this space in place to at least talk to each other and know that we weren't going to agree on everything, but that at a baseline, if we wanted to see build economic power that we had to like you know be in the same space with each other hmm. now as you talk to i, I want to focus on the leftist for a mm-hmm. little bit right as, as you talk to folks uh, black people who identify kind of outside of the mainstream because they are to the left of where the democratic party is it, it does feel like they are present in our media conversation very often in fact it, it feels like I'd say all these black skinheads in one direction or the other end up present in the public mm. dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of debate, I think, within Washington about who speaks for black Americans, especially on the left, and, and how to and how to grapple with the black activist class and where it sits and, and how it might sit further left than a more black establishment class that maybe is more representative of the biggest table of black mm. voters and therefore the base of the Democratic Party. Since we're in Washington and we're talking to East, but you know, what do you make of that as a strategic and tactical conversation? Right, that that it is true that the black leftists and and the black Marxists are a smaller proportion. It's a smaller of the tables. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet that doesn't that doesn't weigh in one way or the other about whether or not what they are saying is correct. Um, and 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 so how how do we grapple with the role of the black leftists in the broader? kind of cross-section of black political politics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting on so many levels. So one of the things that Dr. Um, Wright Rigger uh, talks about in her book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican, is that because of the explicitly uh, white supremacist turn of the Republican Party under Nixon and others and, and the dog whistle politics behind it, that black people, increasingly black Republicans, felt like the Republican Party couldn't be a space for them. Mm. And so they moved into the Democratic Party and she and she supposes toward the end or she says towards the end of the book that this this movement of black conservatives into the Democratic Party and essentially the taking over the party is part of what creates this conservative nucleus within the Democratic Party. Mm. Um, and so that's and, and and that you still see signs of that even in in local politics and with particularly like conservative black women and you know in in local elections and work and so you have that that otherwise and i didn't mean to cut you but that that essentially otherwise if it had not been for kind of an explicit decision made by the republican party we would very likely still see black people as a populace splintered across the two parties because a significant portion of black people hold relatively conservative political yes. beliefs. Not only that, but you would see black people, I think, more pushing the Democratic Party towards the left, towards a more sort of New Deal era hmm. 
Democratic Party. Because they wouldn't be counterbalanced by this subsection exactly. of conservatives. Exactly. And so, like, part of, you know, what is interesting is that there's this inherent assumption that black people are conservative. And it's true, we're the most religious group. There's a lot of conservatism within the black community. But if you poll black people on what would be considered more leftist policy, like Medicare for all, student debt erasure, or you know other things like that, economic policies, I guess I'll say more explicitly, disproportionately black people are actually more left. Um, and so, you know, I think in terms of where the party is now, I think there's like an interesting dynamic playing out where we've seen some very prominent black left-wing candidates uh, like Nina Turner, uh, I'll say India Walton, um, even Jamal Bowman at times, um, who have gotten pushback from the Democratic Party. They've gone against them. They've like almost thrown more weight at trying to like throw the fire blanket over this like over black leftist candidates than what's happening on the right. And meanwhile, what we've seen in 2022 is that um, there were 81 black Republicans running for office this year. And many of them had support, you know, various levels of support from the Republican Party. Um, And the folks I talked to in the book had been organizing for years and continue to organize like you know, black Republicans, because they see that space as an empty vessel. Mm. Uh, and so I think, to go back to your original question, I think that the, the Democratic Party must uh, make more room for a leftist politic. Um, I think that it's important for, um, you know, the federal government. And, and I'll say this, I think that President Biden has actually made some some really interesting moves in the last month. I think the um, Inflation Reduction Act has has been really strong. You know, I think that um, some of the stuff around student debt, I would say he could go further. But it's something, and it's been very relieving for black communities. Those sort of tangible economic gains are a direct response to the progressive to left base within the party pushing them. And so I, I think that the Democratic Party has to look towards the younger generation and see where they're at, see that Many of them are not afraid of third party, not afraid to, you know, vote for different candidates. Mm-hmm. I think Bernie got the largest amount of small money donations for, for black people than any other candidate in the Democratic primary. And really factor those voices in as the future of the party. Um, can, can those voices be the future of the party if the party remains constituted with so many black conservatives in it? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, th- I think that's, that's part of the thing, right? I, I think some of the talking points around the Hill is that, you know, could it be that the Republican Party is going to become the party of the working class? And part of that, I think, comes from, one, the popu- they're not afraid of populism and using populist language and speaking to people's sort of economic disillusionment. But also, when you don't feel like your government is showing up for you in tangible ways, in some ways, it's a lot easier to try to make the case that well, why do you need government? You need government out of your life. All government does is take money out of your pocket. All that government does is, like, you know, put you in jail or all of these stuff. Like, maybe we need to move away from big government. And I think that's the kind of, like, tension point that's playing out. So so what I'm hearing you saying, and, um, and correct me if I'm wrong in the paraphrase, but I'm just trying to, like, suss it out a little bit. Part of what I'm hearing you say is that by governing so conservatively, the Democratic Party does not show mm-hmm. the value of 
whether it be government or the things that can be done, and that that, even as people continue to be failed, mm-hmm. right? And so what that is going to do ultimately is lead to more people adopting more conservative views or becoming black skinheads in the other direction. Yeah, or becoming, you know, more into Marxism or, you know, looking it, at their party It's going to radicalize exactly. in either direction. Exactly. So we started, that little section, we started by talking about kind of the black skinheads of the left, the Marxists, the leftists, right? Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, you, you describe yourself as a Bernie Broad um, in this a few times. C-SPAN, I promise that. It wasn't my phrase. No one canceled me for that, right? Like, but the... Uh, the um, but you said, but I, but I say that to say you identify on the left clearly, and fa- I do, right? Yeah. You know, or of the left, right? Yeah. Like, and and um, you also spend a significant amount of time in this book and in this space exploring the folks who are on the right, mm-hmm. MAGA Republicans, Black conservatives, right? What are the things you learned about them, about what they want, and what's mo- and what's mobilizing them in these moments? Yeah, I mean, I think. One thing that I learned for them, from them was like deep frustration with local politics mm. and um, local aldermen and living in communities like Pullman in Illinois, where I talked to um, Lisa, who was organizing um, you know, Black MAGA people across the country. People who had seen you know, divestment from their neighborhoods, had seen you know, a, a quality of life um, go down you know, in leaps and bounds. And and we're blaming that on, you know, democratic mm-hmm. leadership that they saw. You know, I I would probably counter that, you know, maybe we should look at Republican governments. But like Republican governors rather. But like I think that uh, you know, seeing that those signs of decay around them in their community and feeling like the government doesn't care. That that was that was part of what was driving them towards uh, republicanism. I think, again, um, this thing around um, gun rights, actually, mm. and, and the ability to safeguard your community has proven to be, uh, you know, a big draw for a number of black people that feel like sort of under, their t- under attack in their community in a number of different ways. But I think mainly what I saw is that um, people want to see small businesses small independent businesses cop, you know, propped up in their community, I was a little bit surprised to see um, how much talk in those spaces uh, revolved around corporate power mm. and the role of corporations and, and corporate cronyism and like a number of other nepotism, like all of these different things and a resentment towards the role of corporations in everyday life and feeling like the Democratic Party was too tethered to corporate power. And again, we can, we, we can talk about that a little more and, and how much that's like, you know, a real thing versus uh, who's better at the, to- at the anti-corporate talking points, right? Mm-hmm. But like either way, I think that for them, that resentment of corporate power and a corporatized government was like a huge draw, whether you were like a traditional black Republican, a libertarian, or all of these things, into the Republican Party. We're coming out of an election where we saw a Republican candidate and Donald Trump receive an increasing amount of black mm-hmm. support, um, where we are seeing Republican candidates across the country receive increasing amounts of Latino support. Um, again, we can talk about black people specifically because that's what we wrote about, but this understanding that... Um, the 
the Democratic Party remains the kind of multiracial party of our two political parties, and yet uh, there are some some splintering and some cracks in this in that coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, as we look forward, be it to the midterm elections coming this year and races such as the governor's race in Georgia um, or, or or in Texas, for example, um, but then beyond that into Senate races and the forthcoming presidential election. What do we expect to see happen, or what do you expect to see happen? Not in terms of who actually wins and who loses, Mm -hmm. but in terms of how black voters are going to behave and continue to behave. Would you be surprised if if those numbers in terms of support for someone like a President Trump increases even further? Or what are we to make of this splintering of the black skidheads off from the broader black coalition? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think what's interesting is because of the the sped up environment that we exist in and the way that information moves and is turned over, like I think in a lot of ways it's a lot less predictable than it's Mm. been in the past. Uh, And so I think anything could happen. Like you you don't know necessarily what's going to get memed and shared and become this Mm -hmm. kind of like death nail for like one candidate versus the other. But I'll tell you what, like in in terms of like some of the things that I've seen – I think that for, for many generations, the Republican Party has not been supportive to black Republican candidates. In fact, when I talked to a lot of those mm. candidates in 2020, uh, one of the draws that, that black Republicans that were organizing on the local level, like one of the draws for them was that they could do what they wanted to without having to deal with, you know, the National Republican Party that they weren't always in agreement with. Um, and that they could organize their people kind of like, you know, undercover. But what we saw this year is that a lot more of those candidates, a lot more black Republican candidates were endorsed by Trump, were endorsed by the American Pact, were endorsed by a Red Renaissance, which is Kim Klasik's pact that she um, spun up. And so it'll be interesting to see with, with that monetary support and, uh, you know, more of an ability to... Uh, speak to a broader range of folks, how that appeals to black voters on the local level. So that's one of the things I'm looking for. And I think the Republicans are seeing this as a test. Like, can we finally peel off that 25% that we've been trying to? Because mind you, you know, the odds are in their favor. They only have to get, you know, 25% of the black vote peeled off in order to solidify their power. Um, And so that's, that's something that they're they're looking to see if, if they can be successful at that. I think, you know, I'm definitely looking at some of the races with candidates that have been endorsed by, you know, the DSA, Justice Democrats and others to see how they're doing, what kind of support they're getting, whether or not they're able to, like, organize their constituencies. But I think that uh, what we're seeing is that as we continue to see the hangover from COVID and the recession and you know, I think after the 2008 recession, we lost 60% of black wealth. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of COVID, I think 50% of black businesses closed to closed their doors and didn't recover. So as we continue to see that economic decline and people feeling like representation without tangible benefits at scale is not enough, mm. I think we'll continue to see people more open to alternatives. The book is Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. The author is Brandy Collins-Dexter. Brady, this has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate you <laughs> being you. here. We've been all over the place, politics, Kanye West, and the future of black political thought. Thank you so much, and thank you for your book. Thank you again. 
Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.